Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 to 37. Matthew chapter 12, 22 to 37 is where we're going to be this morning. There's a, a short story written by Edgar Allan Poe called The Telltale Heart. And in the story, I'll spare some of the children that may be listening in the room, uh, the man or the person in the story, the narrator who's telling us the story, has, let's just say, broken the sixth commandment. All right? I can hear the strain of our Wi-Fi router as everybody Googles, what is the sixth commandment? Um, he's, uh, <laughs> he has broken the sixth commandment, and he hears in his ears the tick-tock of the evidence of his sin as the authorities come to investigate. They're asking questions. They're looking for evidence. And he hears the tick-tock of the evidence of his sin that he knows is lying beneath the floorboards in his house. But as the story goes on, as it gets closer to the end, as the authorities are asking him questions, the tick-tocking grows louder and louder until all of a sudden he blurts out his confession and what you realize the whole time was that the tick-tocking that he was hearing was not the evidence of his sin but his own heart that couldn't hold within him the truth of what had happened. In our passage this morning, Matthew 12, 22-37, the Pharisees have met their own stressful situation. You see, Jesus the Messiah has come onto the scene. A person they were not expecting to come onto the scene has now interrupted their day-to-day events and has made the situation stressful for them. And so they have come face-to-face with the Messiah. And in this scene this morning, the Pharisees are going to blurt out a confession to which Jesus is going to show the congregation listening, actually reveals the Pharisee's heart lying underneath. So let's look at our passage this morning, Matthew chapter 12, 22 to 37. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute and was, was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he, find, unless he first binds the strong man? then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. 
Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers! How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Join with me in prayer over our text this morning. Heavenly Father, we pray for the Spirit's ministry concerning this word in your word to us this morning. May it have its effect. I pray that it would draw our hearts ever closer to you, that it would point us ever more toward Christ as our Messiah, and that we would conclude, unlike the Pharisees, that he is Lord of all, and we must worship him. We pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let's keep in mind As we think about our text, the context that we're in this morning uh, in the book of Matthew, we have been studying Matthew for some time now, and we've been seeing the section-by-section approach which Matthew is bringing to us. In the first part of the gospel, he has told us that Jesus is bringing the kingdom of heaven. There's five total sections. We're in the third section. In that first section, we see Jesus bringing the kingdom of heaven. In the second section, we see him exerting the power and authority of the kingdom in people's lives as he heals them, as he demonstrates that he alone has the authority to bring this kingdom into people's lives and that it has a real world impact on people as they are healed. But then in chapter 11 through 13, we're seeing people's varying reactions and responses to Jesus' authority and to the kingdom of heaven itself. Some people are going to land in the camp where they are decidedly in favor of Jesus the Messiah. They've looked at him and they've said, yes, indeed, this is the Messiah. That's precious few people. Then we see another group in that middle ground where they're questioning Is this guy really the Messiah? We see a little bit of that in our text this morning with the crowd there. And then we have others that are absolutely going to reject Jesus as the Messiah. And we see that as the lion's share of the text this morning where the Pharisees are engaged in absolute rejection of Jesus the Messiah. Now also I want you to remember that Jesus has been dealing with the Pharisees in this chapter. He's been dealing head on with the Pharisees. And they have been critical over Jesus' seemingly liberal approach, let's say, of the Sabbath day. They have come in as what they have been self-appointed God's ambassadors to keep watch over the Sabbath day and make sure everybody understands what it means to keep the Sabbath day holy. But Jesus has said, no, in fact, to keep the Sabbath day holy, that would include doing good to your neighbors. So Jesus has defined his ministry for us. He's put a nice little bow around his ministry there at the end of chapter 11. You can see that in verses 28 to 30. I'm just going to remind you of it. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But what becomes evident in chapter 12, as he starts encountering these Pharisees, is that they are completely the opposite of that. Here's Jesus and his ministry. He's gentle and lowly in heart. And here are the Pharisees. They are completely the opposite of Jesus' lowly self. In fact, if you were to look at Matthew chapter 23, you don't have to turn there right now, but when we get to Matthew chapter 23, and I don't know, 10 or 12 years, um, you will see Jesus actually laying out a critique, a woe of the Pharisees. And what happens when you read that, in light of how Jesus has defined himself in chapter 11, you're going to see that the Pharisees are exactly the opposite of that. In fact, if you were to put Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 23, and you were to bring them over to chapter 11, 28 to 30, and you were to line them up next to each other, and you were to kind of rearrange the words of what he says to the Pharisees there, you might get something that sounds like this uh, from the Pharisees calling to the people. Come to us, all who are at rest, and we will tie up heavy burdens on you that are hard to bear. You will take our yoke upon you and learn from us, but we will not lift a finger to help you bear them. And in the end, we will make all proselytes twice the child of hell we ever were. For our yoke is impossible. And our light is a burden. Jesus says all of those things about the Pharisees in chapter 23. Seems the exact opposite of what he's representing. So what we know is that as Jesus is coming in, bringing this kingdom, there's a clash of kingdoms coming. In fact, the entire last section, chapters 21 to 25, is all going to be about that clash of the kingdoms that's happening. The kingdom of heaven versus the kingdom of man represented by the Pharisees. Well, in our text this morning, we're going to see the Pharisees' rejection of Jesus as the Messiah, and Jesus is going to explain to us what their rejection actually means. Okay, so first thing that we're going to observe is that the rejection of the clear revelation of the Spirit of God means certain damnation. That's the first thing that we're going to see right off the top in our text. Rejection of the clear revelation of the Spirit of God means certain damnation. So in verse 14, the Pharisees, remember, they get together and they decide, we're going to ruin Jesus, this so-called Messiah. We're going to put him to death. And you remember the very next verse in verse 15, Jesus withdraws from them because he knows that there's some sort of confrontation that's brewing and he's not ready to get into that just yet. And so he pulls away. Well, by the time we get to our passage in verse 22, so just a few verses later, the respite is over. And it says there in verse 22, Jesus heals a demon oppressed man. It says who was blind and mute. And this happens to be a really important miracle in the grand scheme of things. In fact, the restoration of sight to the blind is solely the responsibility of the Messiah. You have to understand that in order to understand what Jesus is doing here and what he's saying. The restoration of sight to the blind is solely the responsibility of the Messiah. In fact, 
two times in the book of Isaiah, it is prophesied about the Messiah exactly this. The first is in 35.5. I'm going to read that. Hopefully that will appear on the screen behind me. It says, uh, then the eyes, this is Isaiah speaking, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. This is the ministry of the Messiah. Then in, 40, in Isaiah 42, 6 and 7, it says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind. And the Jewish people in the days of Jesus understood both of these passages to be about the Messiah's ministry. Now, he is going to restore sight to the blind. Now, obviously, in both of those passages, there's an implication that there is a spiritual restoration of sight that is restored to the blind. That's for sure. But the way this has always been interpreted throughout history is not only would the Messiah come in and give spiritual enlightenment, open the eyes of the spiritually blind, but he would also open the eyes of the physically blind. There would be, in other words, accompanying works that would come with that, and it was solely the responsibility of the Messiah. In fact, in the Old Testament, it does not contain a single example of a miraculous healing of the permanently blind happening anywhere in the Old Testament. And so this miracle is of particular importance for the conversation that happens next, which is first with the people that are watching it happen, and then the Pharisees coming along. And so he heals this man, and it whips the crowd up into a frenzy. They start questioning, obviously, because they see what has happened. There is a blind man. Not only has a demon been cast out, but there is a blind and, de- and, and mute man that has, is now able to see and speak. So this is incredible. This is a whole different experience that I'm seeing. Can this be the son of David? And they actually ask it in the negative. They actually say, this can't be the son of David, with a question mark. This, surely this can't be the son of David. But in spite of the negative warning, the people are immediately connecting what has happened here with Jesus to the, the ministry of the Messiah. And the son of David name, the name son of David, you can think of it, especially in the book of Matthew, but throughout the New Testament, as equal to the Messiah. They're implying this this. Is this the Messiah? Surely this can't be the Messiah. So the people are beginning to recognize that most likely because he's just healed a blind man, that they might be witnessing the ministry of the Messiah. Can you imagine that for just a second? To think that the pinnacle of especially Jewish but human history has now come and you are witnessing it with your own two eyes? Can this really be the Messiah? What all of our fathers had anticipated before us? Surely not. The Pharisees, Pharisees are having none of it. They come in to, you know, police the crowd and correct them in their assumptions. Well, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. And it's that claim. It's that claim and the attitude behind that claim that Jesus is going to absolutely, fundamentally dismantle 
in front of the Pharisees and everybody there watching. See, the Pharisees are being disingenuous with the evidence. They know it, and Jesus knows it. They know exactly what they're doing. So I want to look really closely at Jesus' argument as he walks through it because it's foundational for our understanding of this text. His argument is actually very, very precise as he dismantles every single step of their statement there that they have questioned the power under which he has done this miracle. Notice though, before we do that, notice They haven't questioned the miracle itself. They haven't questioned the miracle itself. They know what just happened in front of them. What they are questioning is the source of its power. And they're saying that power source is satanic. So look first at what he says in verse 25 and 26. This is Jesus' response to them. Verses 25 and 26. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste. Is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? So the first point of his argument is you know that's not true. And you know that's not true because Satan's kingdom wouldn't be able to stand if that were the case. And he works from bigger to smaller. He says the kingdom wouldn't be able to stand. A city wouldn't be able to stand if it was divided against it. In fact, a family wouldn't be able to stand if it was divided against itself. It would ultimately falter. It would undermine what it even means to be a family or a household. You have to know this is undeniably true. Jesus is beginning with this as a foundation because it is undeniably true. And everyone listening to the Pharisees, and and including the Pharisees, have to acknowledge the inherent truth in what Jesus is saying. It does not make sense that it would be by the power of Satan. So this rules out interpreting, uh, using this as an interpretation of Jesus' miracles, that it's by the power of Satan. So the Pharisees make a charge against Jesus in this direction. And the first counter-argument that Jesus gives turns it back around on them and exposes the fallacy of what they're saying. But then he takes another step in verse 27. He says, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? So there are Jewish exorcists that are going around at that time and they are casting out demons. And presumably there are Pharisees that are part of the exorcists that go around and they cast out demons. That's probably what he means when he says, by whom do your sons cast them out? That's probably your ilk, your kind, the group of Pharisees. So his second argument is that if you're condemning me, then you're condemning your sons as well. Because for whatever reason, the Pharisees are willing to acknowledge that when their sons cast out demons, it is clearly by the power of God. But all of a sudden, when it's Jesus doing it, it's not by the power of God, it's by the power of Satan. And so he says, first, Satan's kingdom can't be divided against itself or it won't stand. That's the first argument that he makes, counter-argument. The second is your sons would also be implicated in this evil as well, if that were the case. And you're not willing to condemn them 
as working under the power of Satan. So he has turned their argument around, and with point two, he has advanced it in their favor, in his favor. Now, if point one, I'm going to use a football metaphor if it's okay with you. Now, I understand, I'm sorry if you don't understand sports, I really am, but this is Tuscaloosa after all, so I might as well just baptize you into the culture. Uh, If point number one is the interception, then point number two is the first broken tackle in the return of the interception. But then point number three that he's about to make in verse 28 is that moment when Jesus breaks out into open space and you realize things are, are, well, changing all of a sudden. Game Game changer, exactly. Verse 28, he says, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, uh uh-oh, then the kingdom has come upon you. Jesus is now in open space. He's running free. This might be the, the first point of the argument where you realize that this is going to end very badly for the Pharisees. In fact, most of them are probably wanting a hole to crawl into at this moment where they realize he is right. He says, if you're willing to concede my first two points, if, and you have to, they're undeniably true, but if you're willing to concede my first two points, then you'll have to say that the only power capable of such works it would be that of the Spirit of God. And if that's the power that I'm operating under, then you'll also have to concede that I am, in fact, bringing the kingdom of God in, and I am, in fact, God's appointed Messiah. And if you concede that, then you have to do something about it. The kingdom of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit through me has come to you at this moment. And what do we know that that means when the kingdom of heaven is at hand? What is the only appropriate response? Jesus tells us in Matthew 4, 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is precisely what the Pharisees do not want to do. Remember, they're standing on the shore when John is baptizing everybody and he points to the the shoreline and he says, who told you? The axe is laid to the root. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Remember, he's pointing to the Pharisees precisely because they don't want to get in the water and be baptized by John. They don't want to repent of their sins in front of everybody. And now they're approaching Jesus' ministry and they're saying he's satanic so that they can avoid the conversation about repentance of sin. That is precisely the thing that they do not want to engage in. But it's precisely the thing that Jesus is demanding of them at this very moment in front of everybody watching. So number one, Satan's kingdom cannot be divided against itself and still stand. Point number two, your sons would be implicated in this evil if this were the case. Point number three, since this is the Holy Spirit's power, you must repent. But the fourth point of his argument is the moment in the interception return where you realize he's going to score a touchdown. 
This is a pick six, as it were. Look at verses 29 and 30. We're going to look at 29 first briefly and then then verse 30. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. So he takes the same set of facts, the casting out of the demons, the curing of the blind and the mute man, But he gives an alternative conclusion that makes so much more sense of the data. See, the Pharisees have been exposed. They have presented to the people a conspiracy theory. Jesus is doing this by the power of Satan. They made him look satanic. And then Jesus, in just a few points of his argument, have made them look like tinfoil hat wearing kooks. You're a conspiracy theorist. In truth, what he tells them there in 29, I'm binding Satan and I'm going to plunder Satan's house and I'm going to set free the captives with the good news of the kingdom of God. So then in verse 30, he adds to that and he says, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So here's the barb to the Pharisees. If you're not part of the process of gathering all those who have been previously held captive by the strong man, if you're not part of the process of since the strong man is bound, going and gathering all of those people in his house whom he has taken advantage of, then you're part of the scattering. In other words, the Pharisees are depicted as keeping people in the lair of Satan hidden. They're hiding them in the basements. They're keeping the closet door closed. They're standing in front of the closet door going, nothing to see here. There's nobody in this room. Keep Keep on going past. They're keeping everything hidden. And so Jesus is saying, look, if you're not with me, if you're not part of the gathering process with the proclamation of the gospel, then you are part of the problem. So don't miss this point, though. All the arguments that Jesus has made are undeniable. Meaning that if you concede the first point, it's over. If you've thrown the interception, the, the offense that now is the defense might as well just lay down. Because it's it's over at this point. And everyone there, everyone listening, Pharisees included, would all concede that. Every single one of them would know that if I concede the first point, the others logically follow. Further, do you see the underlying assumption that you have to walk away with when you think about the whole book of Matthew and you consider how it comes to bear on this passage? What does it say about the Pharisees that they're unwilling to repent because the kingdom of heaven has come upon them? What does it say? about the Pharisees, that they're unwilling to repent when they have to acknowledge that the kingdom of God has in fact come by this Messiah. See, they're not innocent bystanders in this. They're not innocent bystanders. They're actually minions of Satan's army. And that's what Jesus is underscoring here. Because when it comes to this last point, the last point he makes In verses 31 and 32, it's caused a great deal of confusion. 
He's come to the end of his argument. He's scored the touchdown. Now he's about to go for two in the next part of the passage. But in 31 and 32, you might consider this a touchdown celebration, but it's very tragic and sad. So it's more probably the Pharisees' realization and Jesus just stating it outright that their team is awful. It's that realization that they have to come to. Notice, in verses 31 and 32, he doesn't charge the Pharisees with having committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It seems to serve as kind of a warning that they are dangerously close with what they have done. He says in 31 and 32, every sin will be forgiven people except for blasphemy against the Spirit. And he goes on to tell them, look, if you blaspheme the Messiah you'll be forgiven. If you blaspheme the Messiah, the Son of Man, Jesus Himself, well, you can be forgiven. But the Holy Spirit? Nope. That's a certain death sentence. That's hell. Not in this life or the life to come will you be spared. What that leaves us with is a lot of questions. What what, what does that even mean? And which one of us in this room hasn't at one point or another thought to himself, have I done this? Have I committed a blasphemy of the Holy Spirit at some point? Or which one of us doesn't fear that perhaps we have already done that? And that our whole life might just be in vain because there's no way we're going to have forgiveness. Some have said that this means that they've attributed the work of the Holy Spirit to the work of Satan. And that's certainly true. That is what they have done. But it doesn't take into account the entire context. It doesn't take into account exactly how strong this is. It's true, but it doesn't convey precisely what they've actually done. See, the problem that Jesus has outlined in his argument is how unbelievably clear and how unbelievably certain the work of the Holy Spirit has been in this particular case See, Jesus has opened the eyes of a blind man. He's done a work that only the Messiah does. And at the same time, he has cast out a demon, a work Satan would not do. So the testimony of this miracle is one that is irrefutably that of the Spirit of God. It's irrefutably that of the Spirit of God. And the Spirit has made evident in this scene that it was by His power through the working of the Messiah that this actually happened. And so the Spirit is testifying to the Pharisees who know well the Old Testament. The Spirit is testifying, you should know this. You know that this is the Messiah. The logic of Jesus' argument afterwards if there was any doubt, makes it clear that in fact, they do know it. They do understand it. And yet, they intentionally, they knowingly attribute the work of the Holy Spirit to the work of Satan. The Holy Spirit's work gives testimony to Christ. There's this part where he says, oh, you blaspheme the Son of Man. Well, okay, that can be forgiven. You blaspheme the Spirit? No, no, 
You know, I'm going, why the disparity there? The Spirit's work is to give testimony to that of Christ. Basically to give knowledge and illumination of Christ's work. The reason that I pray at the end of every reading of the text of Scripture when I'm preaching is because we require the Holy Spirit to give us aid in understanding the text and applying it to our lives. And so we pray after the reading of the text in order to ask the Lord to do that for us, just confessing one more time our dependence on Him to give us that. But the reason, so, so the, the Holy Spirit gives a, a proper, and you would even say saving knowledge of Christ. So the reason, Jesus says, that the Son of Man can be blasphemed and forgiven, but not the Holy Spirit, is because the Son of Man can be blasphemed in ignorance. You can blaspheme the Son of Man in ignorance, in complete and total ignorance. You can say, well, Jesus clearly wasn't the Messiah. He was working under the power of Satan. You can say that completely out of ignorance. To blaspheme the Holy Spirit, though, means that you have the knowledge of Christ as the Messiah. The Holy Spirit is doing a work in your heart and he's showing you that this is Christ, the Messiah, and you knowingly reject him as the Pharisees have done here. That's what he's telling the Pharisees. Either you have done or you are walking dangerously close to doing. Well, listen to how the Apostle Paul describes his old self before he was converted. Just listen to how he describes himself. 1 Timothy 1.13. This should be on the screen behind you, hope, behind me, hopefully. Um, 1 Timothy 1.13. Though formerly I was a blasphemer. There it is. I was a blasphemer. Formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I, why, had acted ignorantly in unbelief. I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. See, Paul was ignorant of Jesus. That's the reason he was doing what he was doing. Had he not received the revelation of Christ by the work of the Spirit, he would have continued in his ignorance. But then once he received the clear revelation of who Jesus is, and that happened on the road to Damascus, Jesus appears to him. Also, the Holy Spirit does a work in his heart, opening his spiritual eyes, ironically blinding his physical eyes, but opening his spiritual eyes, he believes. He believes in this person that is standing before him saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? The meaning of these verses in Matthew is that the heart of this person is so resolute against Jesus that even the clear revelation of the Holy Spirit, even when they know they have no other option, they will still harden their heart against Jesus. Notice, it is not that God cannot forgive him or forgive them, but that he will not. It's not that he can't. God could do anything he wants, I suppose. But it's that he will not forgive them. If you do that, it will not be forgiven you. R.C. Sproul defines blasphemy of the Holy Spirit like this. I think it's helpful. Someone commits the unforgivable sin when he knows for certain 
through the illumination of the Spirit that Christ is the Son of God. But he comes to the conclusion and makes the statement verbally that Christ was demonic. With all that being said, verses 31 through 32 are not giving anyone license to go around being the you committed the unpardonable sin police. None of us are allowed to go around and say that person right there has committed the unpardonable sin. Why? Because I cannot see the heart. That's why. I do not know where their heart lies. So I cannot tell you for sure that they have committed this kind of sin. This level of revelation by the Spirit has been rejected. The other side of the coin is that some Christians live in constant fear that they have committed or that they will commit the unpardonable, quote-unquote, sin. But let me tell you something. Let me just disabuse us of that knowledge or that thought. It will not happen that you are a dyed-in-the-wool follower of Christ, a disciple of Jesus, that you follow Him to your grave every single day, that you die to yourself, that you love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you die And you stand before God and he opens your file. And he says to you, you know, a lot of this is is okay. A lot of this is fine. A lot of this I can forgive until I get to this one day. Man, you, you committed that one sin and sorry, my hands are tied. I just cannot forgive that. Or I will not forgive that. That is not what we're talking about here. Listen, if you've committed that level of rejection of Christ, you don't care about the unpardonable sin. You have stonewalled your heart so firmly against Christ that you are convinced He is not true. And you will not, under any circumstances, Repent, and the gift of repentance will never be given to you. But the point of the whole line of argumentation that Jesus is drilling down to is that the real tragedy in the Pharisee's statement about him is that they're saying that he's working by the power of Satan, and Jesus is warning them that it's a rejection of the Spirit's clear testimony to their heart about him, and rejection of the clear revelation of the Spirit of God means certain damnation. Now, the last point, and just very briefly, rejection of the Spirit of God is the product of an evil heart, which is what he gets to. That rejection that they give to Jesus is a product of an evil heart. So Jesus is now on the offense. Jesus is always on offense. That's how it works. But he's on offense, and he's going to speak to the precise problem of the Pharisees. Now, remember the context of what we've seen in the Pharisees so far. They've rejected the clear testimony of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is the Messiah. And so Jesus tells them that the reason for their rejection is not because the sign isn't good enough. It's not because the testimony of the Holy Spirit isn't clear enough. It's because their heart is evil. It's so evil, in fact, that they will never reach repentance because God will not give it to them. He will not forgive them. Their words, calling Jesus the devil, 
are really betraying their own heart. He says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So your words are giving to us a window into your heart. And the the window that we see when we look in, all of it is rot and decay. Make no mistake about it, our words matter. They matter a great deal, and our words betray the state of our heart, just like it does with the Pharisees. A person whose jokes are always in the gutter, whose mind is always in the gutter, their heart has been in the gutter for some time. Your words and your actions will always betray you. But so too, a person who is steeped in the Word of God, so steeped that they love to come and worship Christ, they love to be around all things considered, all things edifying to their relationship with Christ, you will hear it in their words. You will hear it in their encouragement. You will hear it in their denial of gossip. So what then does it say about the heart of the Pharisees that they call Jesus Satan? The status of the heart is made visible both by words and deeds. Pay close attention to what he's saying in verse 36. He says that on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak well, that's terrifying. You know how many words I speak? That's terrifying. His meaning here is that it's an idle word. It, 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 the meaning is, is that there's no action behind it. See, the Pharisees have positioned themselves as the ambassadors of God. They're speaking on his behalf and they're teaching the people and yet they don't actually do what they teach And this is Jesus' central critique of the Pharisees, that they are hypocrites. But isn't this what the Pharisees could respond with? We were just kidding. We didn't didn't mean all that. Are your words idle? Because you're going to give an account for all of those. Well, 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 no, we kind of meant it. Well, then you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Which is it? You're caught one way or caught the other. They cannot say that what they said about Jesus was just mere words because their words are testifying to the heart behind them. It is what they actually believe and that calls into question what they teach and everything they say because they are the, uh, the kings of careless words at this point. This is why he says, by your words you will be justified or condemned. Are your words careless? Idle? That means you say one thing and you do another. You don't practice what you preach. Are your words meaningful? That means the opposite. You will practice what you preach. The problem that he's exposing is that their rejection of the Holy Spirit comes from an evil heart. It is the heart of a person that is exposed in both words and deeds. It's the heart of a person that tells the tale. The the words of the heart will eventually make its way out of their mouths. The belief of the heart will eventually make its way out in their actions. Your words and your actions validate what is already true in your heart, just as it does the Pharisees. What is your heart saying through its words and actions? People uh, ask me a lot in counseling situations and things like that for assurance of salvation. There comes this question quite frequently as people deal with sin and and deal with a lot of things going on in life. 
there comes a stressful situation and, and they sit down with me and, and ask, like, I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know, I don't know how to know if I'm saved. And, and perhaps it's true that I'm not saved. And this is always a really difficult question because the truth of the matter is it's a heart issue. And I don't know if you know anything about me, but I'll just go ahead and give you a spoiler alert. I can't see your heart. So I, as a third party, can't necessarily speak into your chest and look in there and kind of go, yes, that is the heart of a Christian. I can't, I can't do that. And in church membership, what we do is we come together and we look at the testimony of someone's life. We look at what they say they believe. We look at how they respond and have responded in the past to sin, what they believe to be true about sin. And we do our best assessment to say we think that they are a member of Christ's church already, and so they're accepted in membership here. And so we look at the fruit that's produced on the outside, and we say our best assessment, but we can be certainly wrong and fallible in that because we cannot look in the heart of someone. But does that leave us with nothing? Is there nothing that we can have for assurance of salvation? Well, no, that's not true either. In fact, your heart will eventually come out in word and deed. And here's what I know about that. That wickedness, sin, false confessions of Christ are typically exposed under tense circumstances. You see that with the Pharisees. Here, as they meet Jesus, they're under a stressful situation, and it's coming to the surface. It's coming out of their mouth. But also what we know is that righteousness, repentance, and dependence on Christ is also exposed under tense circumstances. Well, that doesn't mean you won't sin in the midst of tense circumstances. Of course you will. But that person who engages in those kinds of circumstances commits sin and it causes them to draw ever nearer to the feet of Christ. Understanding their sin in light of, in light of their life and understanding what that means in light of Christ's death and resurrection, casting themselves at the feet of Christ and, and recognizing that I'm a sinner. I need salvation, and my sin here is evident of that, is evidence of that. So those tense circumstances brings out of the heart both things, depending on where your heart currently is. So what do we do? How do we test to know if you are saved, if you are in the kingdom or not? Well, we simply put you under duress. We simply put you under tense circumstances. The way the Bible defines that is the regular and ordinary means of grace that he has given to us in the church. What is that? That is prayer. That is the studying of the Bible. That is the worship of God on the Lord's Day. That is membership in a gospel-preaching church. That is fellowship with believers, calling you out on your sin, holding you accountable to your confession. That is the Lord's Supper. That's the preaching of his word. That's the reading and studying of his word that puts your heart under duress. Now, if those things, those ordinary means of grace that he has given to us, if ultimately they bore you to tears, 
It's probably that your heart is telling you and the people around you that you're not saved. But, on the other hand, if through those things you begin to grow, you begin to grow in love, in peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, if you begin to produce the fruit of the Spirit, and you begin to love Christ all the more as your life goes on, then your heart is testifying what is fundamentally true, that you are His and no one else's. But the point is, it's something that's revealed over time. The question is, what is it saying? What is your heart screaming out? Because the heart always tells the tale. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we lift up the hearts of people in this room that as we consider your words, that we would be able to give a proper assessment of where our heart stands before you. And I pray that if there is anyone in this room who has just realized that they are denying the testimony of the Holy Spirit, that they are denying your work through Christ on the cross, that they would bend their knees and confess before you, Father, save me, a sinner. And I pray if there are any in this room who are struggling with their status before you and have realized how much indeed they love you and how much their heart is yours. That they would rejoice in what you have done for them in Christ. That it would cause them to come ever more closely to your throne, desiring a fervent and fiery relationship with you. That others would be able to see a change. May that be true of all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.